All right, I'm just going to restart my machine and maybe the Lord will um, be providential in this. Um, good morning to those who uh, maybe didn't see me yesterday. My name's Ephraim. Um, I work for London City Mission based uh, in central London. We have a team of missionaries that work across the city. Um, I'm part of the, the training department there, and um, we work with churches to, specifically with the focus of reaching those who are in the most marginalized communities. And so uh, in uh, 1835, the founder of London City Mission, David Naismith, actually set up the organization with the express interest of um, fulfilling what uh, the apostle said to Galatians, um, said to Paul in the book of Galatians, um, that the church would not forget the poor in mission. And so um, there's a level at which that is the bias of our conversation this morning um, in the sense that um, we're considering those who are uh, maybe more marginalized, forgotten, overlooked in our communities. Now, I appreciate that the, sur the, the surroundings here and the community here is very different to London. Um, but one thing we can be certain of is that people are the same wherever you go as those who are made in his image, uh, marred by the fall, and as uh, candidates for salvation through Christ Jesus. There's a commonality, and there are ways in which I would imagine you being here this morning suggests that there may be some relevance or resonance with you and um, just where you're situated and where the Lord has you. Now, can I just get a quick show of hands? And I'm, it is going to be interactive this morning. It's the first session of the day, and I'm still trying to wake up. So I'm going to need your help. And so um, I'm going to be asking you questions and, uh, you know, getting your, asking for your responses. Um, how many of you are from the local Keswick or Cumbria area? Just put your hand up. Wow. Okay, that's a surprise to me. Um, a pleasant surprise, let me say. So, um, how many of you are from what would be considered a city? Ah, okay, so about half. And um, I would imagine that maybe the rest would be from an area considered a town. I don't know what the actual, yeah, the, the geographic uh, definitions are. Is it like up to 500,000, it's a town, and then uh, above, you know, that it's, uh, it's a small city, etc. Um, but we're, we're pretty much from built-up areas, um, and as a result, um, we're appreciative of uh, something that Tim, the late Tim Keller said. He said that uh, cities and urban areas are areas where there are a more concentrated um, collection of individuals made in God's image. And so, therefore, all of the issues associated, sorry, end quote, and so all of the issues associated with people living together in a built-up area are magnified and amplified. All of the issues of, of life, all of the issues of uh, interactions as people, all of the issues of the human heart can be magnified, can be amplified when you have people living um, in, a, in a compressed space, if you like, um, in, in close proximity. And so there are ways in which that has impact on mission, but my focus today is really to... Um, share some reflections on how God's grace really makes the difference <clears throat> in mission. And so um, I'll pray, and then I'll, 
uh, unpack that a little and, and then get some involvement from you. Lord, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for your goodness, mercy, and loving kindness. We thank you for the fact that as we've come here today, there's a sense in which we've set this time apart to hear from you, to hear your heart. Uh, and I do pray, Lord, that you would um, help us, uh, even as the te technical difficulties hamper us, that, Lord, you would prevail by your grace and enable us to really uh, get a sense of your heart and your um, intention uh, for the lost in our marginalized communities. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, it's a, a classic verse. Um, some of us may have been through the experience of committing it to memory. I'll give you an opportunity to turn there um, if you choose. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. And so we see here one of the cornerstones of uh, Christian belief, that actually the salvation we receive from God is granted to us as an expression of his generous love and kindness. It's not something that we earn. It's not something that we deserve. And there's a way in which what that does is it actually puts everybody on a level playing field. No one is better than anyone else. And actually, no one is worse than anyone else in the sight of God. Now we understand that socially there's different kinds of ills and vices that we you know, can be affected by and so on. But fundamentally, in the sight of God, we're all sinners. If the pass mark is 100, we've all scored below it. And it doesn't matter if you get 98 or you get 25. Once you're below the pass mark, you're below the pass mark. And so we're all necessarily um, uh, beneficiaries of grace. And yet, when we look at uh, urban communities, we see uh, people who are often experiencing the, some of the harshest experiences in life. Uh, for example, um, one of the people that we work with, we have a, a day center in Waterloo, central London, uh, and it's just known as Weber Street because it's on Weber Street. And we work with homeless people. And um, there was a, a gentleman, and, and I'll change the names just for um, propriety, uh, and we'll call him Joe. And Joe was somebody who had lost his long-term partner of 35 years. And after uh, that experience fell into addiction um, and, and became um, given to substance abuse. And then that led to him experiencing long periods of homelessness. And he came into contact with the ministry at Weber Street and met the Lord through the ministry. And yet his experience on the streets was such that he witnessed people being stabbed um, people being set on fire, and 
uh, just randomly and indiscriminately assaulted and attacked in various ways. At times, he would sleep in a phone box in order to just try and be safe. And so it's a tragic story, but praise God it has a happy ending as such, in that um, Joe is someone who, by his own testimony, um, is absolutely relieved and um, uh, amazingly grateful for the gift of God in Christ and the fact that he's able to now know peace and love and belonging amongst God's people. And so some of the, the, the characteristics that um, affect people who are from uh, built-up communities and often deprived aspects of those communities um, have certain commonalities. Uh, I tend to try and avoid stereotypes because um, on one hand, stereotypes exist for a reason, and on the other hand, um, they're never consistent. Everyone's an individual. And so, um, to that end, when I speak of commonalities, I'm speaking in general terms uh, and, and not as such stereotypical. So, there was a point when, uh, in church history, around the 17th century, uh, there was a, a meeting of church leaders uh, at the Synod of Dort, and they um, wrote a, a five-point proposition in response to um, certain aspects of the church that were seeking to undermine the doctrine of grace as um, anchored in Ephesians 2 there. And their uh, effort was to actually suggest people have a, a direct contribution to make to their salvation, whether it's doing sufficient to be saved or doing enough to stay in Christ, it's really human responsibility. And so uh, these, these five points of response um, were, were, were published at that time. And then around the 20th century, um, these uh, five points got popularized into the phrase TULIP. Um, I don't know if anybody's familiar with the acronym and might want to suggest what the, the letters stand for. TULIP, T-U-L-I-P. Anyone familiar with that in Christian terms? Before I... Can I grab a mic? Is there, thank you, Tom. Uh, if we can start. If you say the first one, I'll repeat it. The first one is total depravity. Total depravity. So that's the T. Okay. Anyone got the U? Unconditional grace or unconditional election is the second one. So that's the U. What about the L? Limited atonement. And the I? Irresistible grace. And how about the P? The perseverance of the saints. Yeah? Right. And so that, that acronym um, was, was popularized in the 20th century and... By those who have kind of studied Reformed doctrine, they've viewed the fact that actually it's not the most helpful acronym because it's great for shorthand, but terrible for accuracy. <laughs> and so it's wonderful that actually I've just done a quick survey and we've been able to come up with the, the definitions, but what does it really mean? There are principles there for us to understand and appreciate 
And often people avoid talking about these matters because actually it's so divisive. Uh, if we start getting into doctrine and um, how we understand and interpret verses and what they mean, and then this church over here, they see it differently, and this denomination over there, they see it one way, and then we're just like, actually, let's not have the conversation. Let's just love Jesus, love one another, and do mission together. And as a result, there's a richness of God's Word that can be lost to the church, and also, in my uh, uh, view, um, be lost in its impact in mission. And so, on that basis, uh, I want to make an an appeal, I want to advocate for us appreciating these um, principles uh, and in a more general sense, and yet really seeking and praying to see God use the application of them as we're engaging with people on mission. Now, there's a common misconception that people have about urban mission, and that is people from, you know, deprived communities, they've got low levels of literacy, they're not really interested in word and reading, words and reading and text, um, just do nice things for them. And that will really show them the love of God, and they'll be happy with that, and that's all they need. And as somebody who... Um, became aware of Reformed doctrine, which is uh, an expression, Tulip is an expression of Reformed doctrine. Um, I, I, I became aware of that later on in my Christian life. I came to faith in a Pentecostal church, from there went to a charismatic church. So I wasn't brought up in a church where these teachings were common. They were a, they were a myth to me. When I first heard people speaking about Calvin, I thought they were talking about Calvin Klein. And that's, that's not just for laughs. That was actually the truth. And so it, it was something that I kind of grew in my understanding of. And as, I, as somebody who I was brought up by my grandmother, born and raised on a housing estate, uh, you know, went to the roughest primary school, just about made it into secondary school, didn't come out of secondary school with much, and grew up in an area where crime and all other manner of vices was normal, this isn't something that should have really appealed to me. But as I began to encounter the Lord through his word, and then I I met these teachings, it added a sense of richness in my understanding of who God is and what he has done in Christ in ways that impacted me amazingly. And since... I've seen impact others truly significantly. So, um, what I'm going to do is, I'm going to just basically walk through um, each of those five principles. And um, again, we're going to have some interaction. So, um, I'm going to speak to the principle, how it relates to certain characteristics that are common within the urban context. And then I'll ask you to give me your thoughts on how the two might actually meet in significant ways. You're looking very nervous. <laughs> it's all right. You won't be tested at the end of this. I, 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 my conviction is, and I think um, research shows that people learn best when they're involved in the learning. And so um, I'd rather attempt to do that even without a screen than actually have you just fall asleep on me this morning. 
depravity. Um, for those who are making notes, Romans 3, 10 to 12 is an anchoring text for that. There is no one righteous, no, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. That's quite categoric. You could count the amount of times it says no one in that short two-verse section. And in this, we see that there's a, there's a clear sense that actually, and the bottom line is, everybody needs Jesus. Now, this conflicts with our, uh, and again as a generalization, our sense of um, often being very self-sufficient and, and very um, okay in life. But for those who are in um, urban communities, there's uh, a couple of um, views or mindsets that we've encountered that's quite common. Um, the, the first is um, victimhood. Often for people in urban communities, they feel as though, actually, I'm just a victim of circumstance. It's not my fault. It's not my fault that the council have put me on this rubbish estate. It's not my fault that, uh, that they won't give me a job down at Tesco's. It's not my fault. I'm just a victim of circumstance. That mindset can also breed a sense of what might be considered entitlement. Well, if everyone else is responsible, then actually... And, and this is such a common uh, uh, mindset, um, I'm, I'm entitled to what they have. And I'm just going to take it from them. And so the amount of people I've spoken to are involved in uh, a kind of criminal lifestyle, uh, that's, that's their, their criminal by occupation, their mind is, well, they are the haves, I'm a have-not, and I'm going to take from the haves so that I can become a have, because at the end of the day, they've got insurance. Honestly. And so how might, and this is the question now, how might that understanding of the fact that we've all sinned and we all need Jesus interact with the mindset of victimhood and entitlement? Give you a minute to think it through. How might it interact with, how might it impact the mindset of victimhood and entitlement? Now, you might want to just pick one of those out of the two. Because there is a way in which it can have a significant impact. Recognizing that all have sinned, that actually we are all guilty before God. Any suggestions? Thank you. There's not a have and a have not. We're all have nots. Yeah. So now it's a different picture of, of people. Right. And so the difference that that can make is 
If we're all have-nots, it can inspire a little compassion. It, it might cause me to think twice about wanting to burgle your house because actually you're also a have-not. Now, materially you may have, but actually if you have the same fundamental needs that I do, there's a sense in which I'm able to better relate to you and not just see you as an other. We're all in the same boat in one sense. How about um, this sense of entitlement? It's a bit more tricky. Entitlement. How might the... Ah, okay. I guess in the sense that none of us are entitled to anything, that all that we have is a gift from God. Absolutely. None of us are entitled to anything. And so, uh, it, um, I have to actually have a, a kind of sense of humility in that regard, because this sense of entitlement is, is the only thing that, in, in the light of Scripture, that I'm actually entitled to is God's judgment. That's what I deserve. Uh, you're making me run this morning. It's probably not a great idea. Uh. I was just going to ask you in your ministry of people that feel victimized. I mean, not everybody stays there. Some people, like orphans a lot, they, they're very um, influential in their society and they grow out of it or they don't want to stay there. Mm. So how do you minister to them? Well, how do you... Uh, look at that, like some people don't stay there, or do all of them stay there, but your ministry tends to... Um, so, no, let me just rephrase, the, let me re repeat the question so I'm understanding. In terms of, oh, thank you, that's very kind of you. Um, in terms of how people um, with the mindset of entitlement or victimhood um, progress through life, do they continue with that mentality? Is that what you're suggesting? Right. Um, it, it varies. You know, there are some people who it just finds different expressions. Um, and even as they, you know, progress through life, um, that it, it, it finds different ways of sort of revealing itself. Um, uh, you, there are some people for whom, you know, what they say is, okay, um, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not a victim, but I am entitled, and so I'm going to take responsibility, and I'm going to go out there, and I'm going to get what's for me. And so, you know, they might enroll in college, and then go on to a degree, and then go on to work and see progress. And so, that's, I guess that's a, you know, sociologically, it's just a, a kind of fact of life. But what we're helping people to understand is, all of that may be well and good, but what changes if we are still in the position before God? Because I'm sure that we've all been in a workplace where we've worked with entitled people. Very successful, very driven, you know, very accomplished, but very selfish and very entitled. And in that sense, there's a, there's a, there's a level at which it's a heart issue, and it's the changing of the heart that is um, the, the essential thing. All right, the next point. Um, election. 
I just sum that up as being chosen by God. Being chosen by God. Now, again, it's one of those principles where people, can, as Christians, can have debates about the implications and the whys and wherefores um, and, and what it suggests of the, the character and nature of God. And I must say that when I first began to understand these principles and share them on the estates and in the streets and prisons and schools, my surprise was that it was, there was never a debate about, well, much, uh, about who God chose and why. Because that, that principle of being chosen by God had such an impact on those individuals. Why might I suggest that that principle would have an impact on somebody, for example, who's in prison? The principle of being chosen by God. Thank you. And I, I'm going to, I know you, you may be mic shy, which is normal um, mainly, but I guess for the purposes of the recording, it will help. Thank you, Tom. And I suppose people who end up in prison perhaps feel that all of society has forgotten, forgotten about them or rejected them. So to know that the God of the universe knows you, cares about you, and might have chosen you is radical. Come on, my brother. I'm, I'm that person who always got picked last for the team. You know, the reject that no one else wanted. All right, we'll have him. Come on, then. And people can go through life feeling like that. Like, like I'm the leftover. And, you know, when your, your parents have left you and abandoned you and your, your carers have abused you and so on, and, and you just have that sense of feeling like nothing, to know that actually in Christ God would choose you is absolutely mind-blowing. It's radical. That you, you mean that God would, like you say, care enough for me? To choose me. Now, let's be clear that the call of the gospel is whosoever will, come. Whosoever believes will not perish. And so this is the message. We're not walking around saying, are you chosen by God? Hmm, do you feel like you're chosen by God? No, we give the gospel invitation and those who respond clearly are. And it's not for us to try and calculate and, you know, strategize as to who is and who might be and who might not be. We give the gospel invitation to everyone. Jesus came for you. That brings us on to the next principle. So we've looked at depravity. We've looked at election. The, the, the L uh, is, is regarded as limited atonement. Some would say particular atonement. I just say the saving work of Christ. The saving work of Christ. The fact that somebody can be rescued by Jesus. Rescued by Jesus. Now... I don't think you, they, they were um, ready for me to be walking up and down. I just, and maybe if I hold this in my hand, it might help. 
there can be uh, uh, an estate I worked on for um, many years in South London, the Alton Estate. I uh, worked with a brother called Duncan Forbes, and we ran a community music studio there as an outreach. And so we used that as a way of connecting with young people and um, giving them opportunity to learn how to develop music skills and put on performances and so on. And all the while, through those interactions, we would have um, very salty principles. And so your content had to be um, uh, censored, radio-friendly. And, oh, you mean I can't swear, sir? That's right, no swearing. It's not necessary. Let's, let's help you express yourself more articulately. And through this process, in all of our demonstrations, we would use Christian expressions in our art to help them learn how to do their art. And through that work, we saw some... Uh, I had the, the wonderful joy uh, a couple of years ago of um, coming up to Halifax. I feel like it's not that far from here, but my geography's not great. <laughs> Halifax, not that far? Is it quite a long way? Okay, there you go. My geography's not that great. <laughs> it's just far from London. Anything that's far from London's got to be close to each other, right? <laughs> and I came up to Halifax for uh, the, the wedding of one of the young people that we worked with on that council in the state, and he'd come to Christ, grown in the Lord, got married, and just it was a wonderful celebration to just see the, the, the journey of this individual. And one of the things that's really uh, common on the, the housing estate there in Roehampton is this sense of pride, pride of place. We come from the, from the grime, and we work hard. You know, don't, don't, this, this kind of um, notion that everybody who live on housing estates are just layabouts, uh, who just do nothing and just sponge off the, the, the system, is actually a myth. You know, you, you find postal workers, care workers, NHS workers, like those jobs where you've got those diligent people who go in day in, day out, relentlessly, faithfully, so many of them come from that environment. And so they're hardworking people, and there's this sense of pride. Me and my family have lived on this state for three generations. And we are the salt of the earth. And we'll pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. And then they hear of the fact that Jesus is the rescuer. Only Jesus can rescue you before God. What difference might that make to that person? What difference might that make to that individual? Jesus rescues. Jesus saves. Not our hard work, not our, not our family heritage. Just to the front here. Thank you. Um like their independence it's not they don't need to be independent all the time and they're not doing everything on their own strength all the time but they're they're having to be reliant on god who's in control of their lives and not just them absolutely absolutely and what a relief that can be because the reality is that we all know that the hard the hardship of life is such that that kind of a level of intense commitment and and diligence to bettering yourself or getting ahead. Don't, don't, don't give away the mic just yet. I'm going to come back to you. 
um, can, is such that it can be tiring. Tiring. There was something you said about um, reliance. Uh, that's why I asked you to hold the mic, because I knew it was going to jump out my head. Relying on their own strength or having to not... That's it, on their own strength. So often in those situations, people find themselves in a, at a point when their strength has failed. At times, they can self-medicate with soaps, just sitting down watching the soaps endlessly, or drink, or football. Yeah, it can be a vice as well. And seek to find some kind of escapism. For some, it's the betting shop and losing all their money. And that can come from that place of weariness. I'm tired of trying. Uh, as somebody once said, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. And the relief of knowing that Jesus is our rescuer. That actually, that feeling that we have is, it, it exists because of our separation from him. Our separation from God. That sense of dissatisfaction is because we have Eternity sown in our hearts, and no matter how hard we run the Ferris wheel, we just never feel like we're getting there. But Jesus makes all the difference because he brings a sense of inner satisfaction and relief from our efforts. Thank you. Another thing that happens is that people try, try, or view themselves, well, I can never measure up. And then they realize it's not a matter of their measuring up. It's the fact somebody's come and done it for them. And so they don't have to measure up. And so that's a big relief, too, is that I've, I've, I've tried, I've tried, but, you know, God, God can't love me. God couldn't save me because you know, I'm just not good enough. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you, my brother. Um, some, I, I, I um, led a, a men's gathering um, a, a few, uh, about a month ago now, and it was the first gathering of this kind that the, the church had had in its history. I think the church had been around for about 60, 70 years, and they were just like, no, we need to do something for men. And, and I stood there and I said, um, a lot of you have men have, have never heard um, that you're loved. Um, especially from a father. You've not heard, I love you from a father. You've not heard, and I should say, you, I said, we, uh, as someone who had that for much of my life, my dad wasn't in my life um, for many years, many, many years. And to know that God loves you, and in Christ, he says, well done. It was a moment it was a moment. It, it, it was a men's conference, but I saw a few glazed eyes and, you know, tear ducts getting a bit plump. Yeah. Because just that sense of, I don't have to measure up. I don't have to try and meet this approval that's never given for one reason or another. All right. Um, I'm conscious of time, so I'm going to crack on. Uh, the next one. 
the, the person and work of God's Spirit. Um, that's how I basically sum it up. So, um, typically, it's known as irresistible grace. Um, the person and work of God's Spirit. Now, what might that mean for someone who feels entirely powerless? They feel that their life lacks control. Maybe they even feel that their life is controlled. You know, some of the most avid conspiracy theorists uh, come from uh, uh, our neighbors on the states, etc. And it's often because there's this sense of the powers that be. And they have their agenda. And what, what power do we have? What, for some, it's their life is, has succumbed to addictions. And, and they are driven by these addictions to the point where they feel completely powerless. My brother. Um, I guess for a lot of people where, where life just happens to you and where, where, where you don't get much choice or agency um, uh, in, in, in kind of what your future looks like, uh, the, the fact that um, the fact that you're, you're um, the fact that some, somebody else is 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 powerful to make to, to be bringing about those choices in you is is quite a liberating truth where absolutely where suddenly because yeah, te technology is really giving us a hard time today. <laughs> um, but you're absolutely absolutely right, bro. That, that sense of um, being in a place where um, you feel you can't, but knowing that, and I love the way you said it, that there's a work within you. There's, a, there's someone within you at work that's able to give you the strength to actually go on to... And, and you know, there's no... It's, it's not lost on me in Ephesians 5 when it says, don't be drunk with wine, but be what? Be filled with the Spirit. There's a direct correlation being made there, as in, you don't have to be controlled by sub substances. You have a choice. Don't do it. Because through Christ, when he grants his Spirit, he enables you. You don't, you don't have to be enslaved to gambling addiction. You don't... Because once the presence of the person of the Holy Spirit comes into a believer, and regardless of what your theology is on, you know, um, the gifts of the Spirit and so on, one thing is fundamentally true for all Christians. We all have the presence of his Spirit within us. It's just that some choose to recognize that more than others. But nonetheless... He's not needy. He's at work in us. And he's at work in that individual who is feeling powerless, feeling like they can't, their life can't change, feeling like they can't overcome their circumstances, feeling like there's the powers that be controlling their life, when actually they're able to gain some agency through the promise of the Spirit.
Um, all right. The, the final one, um, some would say that the, the perseverance of the saints, and uh, as has been mentioned earlier, uh, I would tend to choose the preservation of the saints because I feel that it more accurately communicates God's work of grace. Perseverance almost seems like something that I have to do. And so all of these wonderful expressions of grace uh, are kind of uh, accounted for. The last one is still down to me. I have to persevere. The Lord keeps. Uh, it, in Philippians 1 verse 6, it says that, uh, I'm quoting from memory, I know that the Lord will complete his work in you unto the day of Christ Jesus, until Jesus comes. Did I quote that right? Somebody can fact check me. Close enough, paraphrase. He began a good work in you, will carry it to completion. There we go. Theology and community. And so, for somebody who uh, is feeling very hopeless, feeling very vulnerable and insecure, what difference might that principle make to them? Hand up at the back there. I love this. The hands are going up much quicker. It's, it's wonderful. To know you're going to be carried home is a relief. Aye. And it, it isn't more simple than that. Like, it isn't more complicated than that. Like, yeah, your father's going to carry you home. You Amen. don't have to try and work your way there. I felt that, my sister. It's like you felt like in that moment, the relief of being carried. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, it's why you, you know, when I'm in the States and we, we as an organization, we go around and we do door knocking and um, we delight to encourage Christians to come out and, and let's go door knocking together. And often it's just like door knocking as if it's the sole preserve of the Jehovah's Witnesses and like <laughs> they've got a monopoly of door knocking. In fact, we don't want to go door knocking because they're going to think it's the JWs and they're going to hide. <laughs> but actually, people do. We get into was with a church um, last week at our staff team day, and they talked about the fact that um, they went to 90 doors in their community the first time that they went door knocking. And the reality is that you might get 10% of them that open up the door. But that's 10% more than nothing. And so, being able to go out and engage with people, and often walking into the house, I'll see a footprints poster on the wall. And I'm thinking, oh, I wonder if they're Christians. And through a short conversation, it's very clear that they're not. But this footprints poster is footprints in the sand for those who are unfamiliar with it. And it's, um, it says something along the lines of, you know, you may go through life when it feels like no one's there for you. And you, you, look, at, you look back in the sand and you only see what you think are your own footprints. But actually God cares. And he's there for you. And those footprints were not yours, they were his because he was carrying you. I mean, it says it obviously much more succinctly and artistically, but just that sense of 
God carrying you home. It's powerful to know that I'm always going to be cared for. God will always be there for me. And he will always see me through. And so, oh, please do share. I'd like to tell you, um, it's relevant. My husband was at Bible college quite a few years ago, and in his tutor group was a man who hadn't long been in prison, and he came to know Jesus, and he felt that he needed to go and learn, like you said. And he ended up at this particular Bible college, and he became a friend of my husband, and he went through three years with him. And just to say, he totally got what you're saying, and he's now leading the most amazing work in the housing estates in the poorest part of Edinburgh. Praise be to God. Praise be to God. It's the different difference that grace makes, you know, really. Hi, um, <clears throat> so my brain's been like firing on all cylinders <laughs> all the way through this. So I hope this comes out con uh, coherently. But um, so there's, I don't know if it's the same scheme in Edinburgh actually, but it's Grace Mount. Part, so that's where that's where we are, um, and it's a really like matriarchal sort of like society. And it's that I think the sort of like the brokenness and that need to be carried is often like covered by this facade of I'm really strong and I can do all this, and you know I can carry all this. Um, but I work for Safe Families, um, and so we once had one of my colleagues went into this community and went to the door of this woman who is like you know everyone knows her and she knows everyone um and she was like oh you're not coming in here you know like I can do this fine we don't need your help and it, so the woman my colleague's actually from London she's got five kids and she was like managed to relate to her in a way where it's like class didn't matter um it was like we've been through the same struggles you know we've we've kind of raised five kids and it's challenging and she let her in which was like amazing because this woman yeah was like really kind of yeah just strong on the outside but really like yeah needing help and vulnerable on the inside and so I think being able to relate to people in that way um and showing them that actually we all need carried absolutely really powerful absolutely absolutely because the I think that re the reality is we know that we we can't get through life on grit alone and determination alone. Um, the, the reality is that the power of sin is so pervasive. You know, it's people get opportunity to get away, build a house in the sunset, on a cliff, overlooking the sea, idyllic life, and a tsunami comes. What do you do? You get what I'm saying? Life happens, and it can feel so cause someone to feel so hopeless. But to know that whatever we go through with God, through Christ, will be carried always. Yeah, Amen. Uh, Mike over here. Ah, we say, my sister. Um, just. From start to almost you finishing, um, I just keep thinking of Psalm 46, mm. and it talks about how the seas are raging and, and you know, the mountains are falling and 
tumultuous things. And verse 10 says, be still and know that I am God. Come on. And I just want to say that I've been living that verse recently in the last few years Mm. where everything's out of my control. Mm. But as he's told me to be still, he keeps sending people saying, be still and know that he is God. Mm. And as I'm looking back, I can see that with me taking my hands off and being still, I'm seeing how much he's doing. Mm. And so I just want to say that with everything you're saying, it just... He really does. If you just take your hands off and be still and just trust in him mm. and just pray for your faith to grow in him. Amen. It's hard. It's really hard. But yeah. he will as you're, with what you're saying. But I just knew I was yeah. to say to read Psalm 46 and then just really concentrate on verse 10. And then with the other one, it, you know, it says, I am the Lord God Almighty. I will be exalted. But just be still. Yeah. Um, and so I'm jumping back slightly. <laughs> but, um, when you were talking about addictions, it's, it's again, it's just, um, sorry, I struggle talking in front of people. Right. But um, doing well. it's just important to really look and recognize that addictions, it's, the root of it is idolatry. Mm. And it's recognizing that it's, it's an idol. We've all got different things we're going to wrestle with. Mm. But if you recognize that it's idolatry, that's where you can start to um, get free because you start taking away the idol and you again just asking and, and God I, and to I take place. And I want to respond to that because I think sometimes when we acknowledge that we don't what it can be really helpful to do when we help people to understand that it's an idol in the face of that, people can still feel quite overcome. Like, this idol has a hold on me. And so, being able to say, you know what, it's like when I was at school, and, you know, somebody would, you know, get into an altercation with someone else, and they'll say, I'm going to get my brother onto you. And then that one says, well, I'm going to get my dad. My dad's bigger than your brother. And there's this kind of sort of one... Actually, like the Lord is God Almighty, and he's greater than every idol, and he smashes idols just for breakfast. And so, actually, there is an idol, but God is greater. Throw yourself on his mercy. Embrace him with all your heart, and he will crush your idols. You know, David and Goliath. Jesus is David. We're not. He's cracking Goliath's skull for us, the cowering in the, in the wings, you know? And so that's the real hope. It's, it is recognizing that it is an idol and it has power, and, and it's something that we are permitted to do. But actually, God is the conqueror even of those idols. And that goes back to be still and know that I'm God. And I feel that's a wonderful way to end the session because when we consider grace, it's all of him. It's all of him. And that is such an amazing um, truth to, to appreciate that actually in his love, he gives himself entirely to us.